Very few could say that 2020 hasn't been filled with stress and maybe even some anxiety. Recently, I sat down with several counselors and just chatted with them about how we're dealing with anxiety in our world today. One of the things that on occasion I use in my office to describe anxiety is if you've ever had three or four um, caffeine drinks too many, and you get that tingly sensation that just kind of goes through your whole body, your hands, your arms, your whole insides feel like they're just kind of shaking and quivering. That oftentimes will describe what somebody that has real anxiety experiences, and that can accelerate and get more intense, and that would then slide into like a panic attack where it just disables them at that moment. So when that person comes in and they're dealing with anxiety and it paralyzes them, we find out in what way it does, like I can't sleep or I just can't get out of bed in the morning. A lot of times the symptoms will be physical, so they'll have gastrointestinal problems, they'll have gut issues, they won't be able to sleep. Some of the best symptoms is they can't turn their mind off. It keeps them uh, awake at night. When people present with anxiety, they typically have a running critic in their head. One of the things I've observed that has occurred in the last seven months because of COVID, there's like two different categories that I use. There's things that we can control, and there's things that we think we have control of. And what COVID has done is eliminated a lot of those things that we thought we could control. So we've been confined to home, we've been told this, we've been told that, and that has fueled and, and fed that anxiety cycle for, for many people. To handle anxiety, it's not possible probably to, to turn it completely off. You know, it's just so human to have it. To, to manage anxiety, I think, takes a skill set. You need to have a quiver with arrows in it that you can pull out to handle your anxiety. What issue, what emotional issue wouldn't be helped by sleep and exercise and nutrition, right? So those would be some of the, the physical skills that I would be looking to, to foster in somebody who's beset or really wrestling with anxiety, which is most of us now. Let's make sure that the disciplines of worship and studying God's word is a part of your life. We're not just throwing that out because that's the Christian thing to say, it's true. When people process through writing or journaling, they're creating some more self-awareness and more insights. So when someone can keep track of their thoughts, I, sometimes people are actually surprised at really what they're saying to themselves. I say to myself, if a best friend talked to me the way I talk to myself, would I want to hang out with that person? What we'll do is we'll process the critic in their mind. And what we look for is truth, because the truth sets us free. God's word has power, and it helps us. And then to be able to pull that scripture up, read through it like, God is my refuge and my strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. God, thank you that you are our refuge, that that's a place I can go hide, that I can rest, that you're present during this anxiety attack. God, give me the strength to work through this. If I'm feeling anxious and I hate feeling anxious, I shouldn't feel anxious, now I've actually got kind of two problems. So what I like the idea is that it's okay to be anxious. Let's just figure out together what to do, what passages would be helpful for you um, to be able to manage that anxiety. I'm oftentimes reminded of an old book by Richard Foster celebration of discipline and he went down this list of things that are potential things that we can fast from for the purpose of drawing our heart closer to the Lord fast from the TV from the radio all kinds of different things for the purpose of using that kind of a time to further my own walk with the Lord the one thing I would say about anxiety is train yourself to welcome uncertainty Get over the idea that it's a really terrible thing, and if you hate feeling anxious, you work on yourself to hate it less and less and welcome it, and then let God try to move in on that part of the problem. Well, good evening, church. How are we? 
Doing all right. Hey, if you got a Bible with you, go ahead and go to Second Chronicles chapter 20. If you don't know where Second Chronicles chapter 20 is, if you're new to church or you just don't know where that is in the Bible, there's a holy table of contents up front and don't be ashamed to go there. Second uh, Chronicles is just chronicling the history of Israel's story, the history of the people of God. And I think it has something to teach us tonight. And so again, Second Chronicles chapter 20, if you don't have a Bible, don't own a Bible, uh, we'll have it up on the screen here. You can also just Google it, have it up on your phone. Uh, before we get started, one actually have you do something, if you would, for just a moment in a very COVID-appropriate way, would you turn to the person on your right or on your left? You get to choose. And just say, I'm glad I sat next to you at church tonight. <laughs> All right, then go to your second choice. Second place runner-up, tell them I'm, y- you too. All right. <laughs> and, and listen, here, here's why I do this tonight. I said something last week, I want to repeat it this week, and I might just repeat it all throughout this series because I really believe it's true. Um, we're we're going to do this six-week series here. We're in the second week, and we're talking about the, the, the things that are heaviest on our heart in this season. And, and here's just my assumption going in, and really the assumption of the leadership of our church. My assumption tonight is we're going to talk about anxiety. We're going to talk about stress. We're going to talk about being overwhelmed, or like you saw in this video. And here is my assumption. My assumption is that you are anxious right now that you are overwhelmed, that you are stressed right now. And if it's not you who's stressed, one of the two people you just said hi to are experiencing that right now. Like my assumption going into this is either that you are stressed or someone sitting right next to you is stressed, or or maybe they're not right next to you. Maybe it's your mom back at home or or your sister or, or your best friend or the person you work with that someone is stressed. And so every time we come into this place, this goes for every time we gather as a church, but especially during this six weeks, I want us to remember that it might be because the God of the universe has a word for you. He wants to speak something into your heart. Like you're not just here to hear a nice sermon and and worship a little bit and then go home. Like the God of the universe might want to speak something to you tonight, but but it's also entirely possible that the God of the universe brought you here tonight to speak something through you to someone who's in desperate need. And so I need someone tonight to just go, listen, if this is what God has for me, I'm going to open my heart to what it is. But if tonight I'm going, I'm not anxious and I'm not worried and I'm not overwhelmed, I love that. I'm not here to be down on that. I'm here to celebrate that. But I'm here to tell you, if you don't feel this anxiety, if you don't feel stressed and overwhelmed, I believe the God of the universe has you here to bring a word through you to someone who desperately needs it. So lean in tonight. Listen to this story. We're going to listen to a story tonight of the people of God, a story that is thousands of years old. And yet I believe it has something to speak into this moment, tonight, in this time. It's a story some of you might've heard and some of you may have never heard this story in the Bible before. But I think after tonight... You'll never forget it. Here's how it goes in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And again, if you're there, great. If you're not, you'll be up on the screen. 2 Chronicles chapter 20 says, After this, the Moabites, the Ammonites, and some of the Mayunites came to wage war against Jehoshaphat. So sometimes you read the Old Testament and and you run across names and and, and peoples and, and places that you've never heard of. And it's easy to check out when you see that in the Bible because it's easy to be like, I've never heard of that place But believe me, if the people in the Bible heard of where we are, Westlake Village, Thousand Oaks, Newberry Park, Calabasas, what is this? Like, like you are so used to what these places are called that you're just like, oh, that's normal, that's simple, that's easy. But the people in the ancient world would have no idea what your town was called. So how about we have some patience with the Bible people, okay? They had names, it made sense to them, we're gonna go with it. Here's what it is. There's three nations, the Moabites, the Ammonites, the Mayunites, three nations who have decided to band together to make war against Jehoshaphat. Now, who's Jehoshaphat? Jehoshaphat is the king of the people of God. He's in charge. He is the person that the people of God have said, you're in charge. God has put him in charge. He is in charge of the people of God. So here's the story we're going to look at tonight. The story we're going to look at tonight is what happens when the king of the people of God encounters a force beyond reckoning who is banded together to take out his kingdom. Like tonight is the story of how the people of God stand against opposition. It's a story about how the people of God respond to war, to battle, to a fierce force, to an unstoppable movement that is coming against them. And here's why I think this is important. This sets up the whole story tonight. Like, like we need to understand so clearly um, that this, uh, this, this, uh, this opposition that's coming at them, this war that's coming their way, it's not an abnormal thing. It's not a strange thing. And it's not a strange moment for the people of God. 
In fact, I want to put this in your mind tonight, that opposition is inevitable for the people of God. That opposition is inevitable for the people of God. Listen, here's what I understand. Like this year has been filled with opposition from a pandemic to an economic collapse to tensions over race and tensions over civil unrest and government and how all of that has worked. There's been crazy things in the news. There's been political strife and political upheaval that there's been all of these things happening like globally, right? And then there's all the things that happen in your life that have nothing to do with anything in the news, stress about your relationships and stress about your health and stress about your family. There's all of these things going on. And yet here's what I just wanna try to identify for you tonight. See, see, I think there's this like murmuring right now in our culture and maybe some of you have felt it. Maybe some of you have said it. We're like 2020 is the year that we would have liked to skip, right? Like we're just over 2020. So I've started seeing on the social media, like countdowns until 2021 as if like COVID's just gonna expire and 20, like we're done, right? But, 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 but here's the deal. I think there are some people, maybe even some of you who are convinced, who are convinced that this year is completely abnormal in every way. And here's what I wanna suggest to you. Outside of a global pandemic that happened to hit us this time, there's been others in your lifetime that you just haven't cared about at all. This one happened to affect you. Outside of this, everything that's happened this year is normal. But like you get the financial collapse happens all the time. And just because it didn't happen to you doesn't mean it doesn't happen to all kinds of people. Like political unrest is not like some new thing that the world has never seen or even our own nation. Like racial strife and controversy over what's going on. This isn't like unique to 2020. This has been part of our story as long as we've had a story. Like the unrest, the unease, the tension, the stress and the strife, all of this is not unique to 2020. And I think there are some people, and again, perhaps some of you who have come to believe that once we get past coronavirus, then life will get mellow and easy. But if you're believing that, I have bad news for you. You've deceived yourself. You've deceived yourself into believing that opposition and difficult and hard and stressful and overwhelming things are unique to 2020 rather than the inevitable course of a broken world that the people of God are called to live in. Like I need you to understand this tonight, that opposition is inevitable for the people of God. The story we're going to read tonight is not how do you make sure there are never problems in your life? Like if that's your mission, make sure there's never problems in my life. You will have an endless mission that will only fail. Your life is going to be full of problems. There's going to come a day, I don't know when that day is, when COVID is done, where these stupid face masks are off, where we get to be next to each other and be inside, right? Like we get to do all of these. That day is coming and you'll still have problems. There'll still be things in our culture, in our nation, in our city, in our church, in your family, with your roommates, everywhere. It is inevitable for the people of God. The story tonight is not about how to avoid problems. It's about what you do when those problems come at you because it is inevitable. Dr. Rick Blackman, at the end of that, he talked about becoming comfortable, becoming okay with the fact that there's uncertainty, there's things going on and you don't quite know how to control them. Here's how it goes on. So these armies are coming up against this king. It says, some people came and told Jehoshaphat, like his his servants, his subjects came to him. We're like, "We, we have bad news for you. And here's the bad news. A vast army is coming against you from Edom. And from the other side of the Dead Sea, it's already in Hezron Tamar, which is En Gedi. So in other words, like they walk up to him and they're going, we got bad news for you. And the bad news for you is that there's an army coming at us. We don't want to sugarcoat it. We don't want to water it down. We don't want to make you pretend it's less than it is. It's a huge army. And it's not just that it's a huge army. It's that they're close and they're about to invade us. And here's what I love about this moment in the story. What I love about this moment in the story is that they're willing to say what's true, even when it's uncomfortable. They're willing to say exactly what's going on, even when it would be easier to say, oh, we might be invaded, maybe someday. They're willing to just face and confront the brutal facts of their situation. And I think as I speak to you tonight, and again, if you're wrestling with anxiety, stress, worry, feeling overwhelmed, if someone in your life, someone sitting next to you, someone in your home is struggling with this, I need us to understand that confronting the brutal facts of our situation is not some nice to have if you're going to overcome this. It is a must have. You need to brutally confront the facts of your situation if you have any hope of overcoming that situation. You see, here's what I've learned in in years of of counseling people and working with people through really difficult situations, through situations that I don't think are really difficult, but the person thinks are really difficult. Here's what I've learned, that most people think they lack capacity when what they really lack is clarity. 
Most people think they lack capacity to take on hard things when what they really lack is clarity about what those things really are. I found in my own life, maybe you've found this as well. You ever had a moment where you're just overwhelmed with the work you have to do? The schoolwork you have to get done for those of you who are in college, the work you have to get done for those of you who work in a business and organization, you just kind of feel overwhelmed. Here's what I found in my own life. It's usually not I'm overwhelmed because I can't get all this work done. It's usually I'm overwhelmed because I'm not even sure if I'm getting the work I'm supposed to be doing done, right? Like I'm unclear on what I'm supposed to do. And because I lack clarity, I feel overwhelmed. So the issue isn't my capacity. The issue is my clarity. There have been times in my life, and maybe some of you will resonate with this right away, where I feel broke. I feel like I don't have enough money to do all the things I need to do. I have all these things that I want to do, need to do, would like to do, and I don't have enough money. But do you know that the problem in your life is almost never that you don't have enough money? It's that you have no idea where the money you do earn is going. It's not a lack of capacity. It's a lack of clarity. That There have been moments, and maybe you've had this, where I have to have a tough conversation with someone, and I'm worried about it with a family member, with an employee, with someone here at the church. I have to have a difficult conversation. And there's times I think I lack the capacity to do it. I go, I don't know if I can do this because it's going to be awkward. It's going to be hard. It's going to be overwhelming. But you know what? It was more than often the truth. The issue isn't my capacity to have a hard conversation. It's that I haven't actually clarified exactly what I need to say. And more importantly, what I need them to hear. See, most people think they lack capacity, but I need to, you to tell you that, that you have unbelievable capacity to take on challenge in this world. In fact, if you have the Holy Spirit of God, I would even say you have infinite capacity to take on the things of this world. What you lack so often is clarity to be able to identify the problem in front of you, to not water it down, to not make it a little, little less, not to obfuscate and make it just a little bit different, but to face it, to face the brutal facts of your situation. Listen, I think there's some of you who are overwhelmed tonight and you need to actually take the time and do the work to write it down, to figure out what you're actually facing. I think there's some of you who are stressed about a conversation or something, a situation with a family member and you need to say it out loud to someone else. You need to work it through with someone else because until you have clarity, you will always lack the capacity. See, most people think they lack capacity. What they really lack is clarity. I said this last week, I'll say it again, that what you will not identify will only intensify. Until you identify that thing, until you name it, until you say it out loud, until you look it straight in the face for what it is, you will never overcome the most difficult things in your life. This story begins with a massive army invading Israel, the people of God. And what they do right up front is so brilliant. They identify it, they name it. They look it straight in the face. And then here's how it continues. It goes on this way in verse three. It says, alarmed, Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire of the Lord. So the king of Israel hears that there's this army coming against him. And then you'll see that first word there. It's that he's alarmed. Maybe a different way of saying that is he's worried. He's panicked. He's overwhelmed. He feels heavy in his heart. He's scared of what is coming at him. Can I encourage someone tonight who's come to believe this lie that has seeped into like the Christian church and the Christian mind? Can I speak to someone who's believed the lie that in order to be a solid follower of Jesus, you'll never be scared? You'll never be worried? Like I think if some of us have bought into the myth that if you really love Jesus and really trusted him, you would never be alarmed. You'd never be scared. You'd never have a moment of fear. I'm here to speak over you that Christian courage and Christian faith isn't that we never have fear. Christian faith is found in what we do when we are afraid, what we do when we are scared. To someone here who goes, I feel scared, and that means I'm not strong enough in my faith. Absolutely not. Here's Jehoshaphat, and we're about to admire and revel in his faith. And yet his first reaction is that he is alarmed. He's scared. I just need to free someone up tonight who's been walking under a guilt that God never put on you, that you feel scared, you feel afraid, you feel overwhelmed, you feel frightened at what comes next. I need you to know that makes you normal. That makes you a normal person. That makes you a normal man of God, a normal woman of God. It says that Jehoshaphat is alarmed. And then I love what it says. It says alarmed Jehoshaphat. And then I love this verb. He resolved to inquire of the Lord. Like in other words, it wasn't like he heard this army was coming against him and he suddenly called his generals together and made up a plan. It wasn't that he saw the army coming and then he ran away so he wouldn't have to come into the conflict. It's not that he saw it coming and started complaining or blaming the king before him or blaming someone else and what they did. It's that immediately he makes a resolution and that resolution 
is that he's going to seek the Lord. And I think this is an interesting thing. I think this is a profound insight with this verb here. Isn't it interesting that King Jehoshaphat, again, who we're about to admire his faith, his capacity to trust in the Lord. Isn't it remarkable that King Jehoshaphat says, in order for me to seek the Lord, I'm going to have to resolve to do so. Well, I actually think there's something powerful here where he assumes this won't be his first reaction. So he resolves to do this. But like, I think he has an insight that some of us need to actually come to. Do you know that it isn't usually our first reaction to seek the Lord? Do, do you know that on almost every situation, what we tend to do is we tend to like first try to fix it ourselves. And then we try to get other people in. We're like, I've got this problem. Can you help me with this? And then when other people fail and we fail, we're like, all right, I got nothing else. God, you know, like we do that. And yet here's what Jehoshaphat did. He resolved to seek the Lord. He said, I know this is about to get difficult. I know I'm about to have some sleepless nights. I know I'm walking into a season, into a moment, into a month, into a war where this is going to be difficult. So he resolves to seek the Lord because here's what he understands. And here's what I need us to understand tonight, that nobody drifts into prayer. Nobody. You do not drift into prayer. Prayer doesn't just kind of happen naturally. You just kind of drift into it. The people who have a solid prayer life aren't the people who just kind of hope it will happen at times. It's the people who commit to prayer, who resolve to pray, not when things get hard, not when things get overwhelming, not when there's no other option, but they resolve to pray. They resolve to seek the Lord before it happens. I want you to resolve to pray before things get stressful, before the new semester starts before that new season starts, but before you're going into Thanksgiving dinner and you know it's gonna be a mess, so you're just gonna to resolve to pray even as your uncle's spewing all the things your uncle spews and you're just sitting there angry and mad. Resolve to pray ahead of it. Resolve to pray ahead of the meeting you're going into that you're stressed about. Resolve that you're going to pray because you won't drift there. Our drift is always toward ourselves and our own capacity. And then our drift is always toward other people to help us out. But here's what Jehoshaphat knew. I'm gonna to have to resolve to pray. It goes on this way in verse three. It says, and he proclaimed a fast for all of Judah. Isn't that interesting? He's like, this is going to be this horrible moment. There's a literal army invading us. And this isn't like a metaphorical army, okay? There's like a literal army with swords and spears and bows and arrows and torches walking toward us. And he goes, okay, everyone, listen up. For the next 24 hours, don't eat food. <laughs> That's what he goes with. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that he doesn't like resolve to seek the Lord? And then he goes, I'm calling everyone to arms. Get your swords together. We're going to start marching toward that army. He says, no, I'm going to call it fast. And I think this is really interesting. I try to point this out everywhere I can in the scriptures. Um, I, I just, you cannot read the Bible and not notice how often people fast. And you cannot read our culture today in church and recognize how little we fast. And I think this is remarkable. I just want to speak to someone here who is walking through a season of stress, of being overwhelmed, of being anxious. And listen, that anxiety may be clinical anxiety that you are getting treatment for and you're seeing a professional. And it might just be that stress and anxiety that bubbles up in all of us from time to time. Whatever it may be, can I encourage you to fast? And you heard in the video, he was talking about um, like fasting from TV or fasting from Facebook or fasting from your phone. All of those are good things. Like do those things by all means. But biblically, fasting means you do not eat food for a certain amount of time, period. 24 hours, 36 hours, 48 hours. I'm only gonna drink water. I'm not going to eat. I'm going to do this. Here's the way I wanna put it to you tonight, that fasting should be a tool in your spiritual toolbox. And I think for some of you, you have the spiritual toolbox and every time you need a thing, it's like, I'll read the Bible, which is good. Like, I'm a Bible guy, okay, read it. And some of you are like, I'll pray. And like, yeah, that's good. I'll seek counsel. That's good. I'll worship. That's good. Fasting should be a tool in there. And my fear for some of you is that fasting is never a tool you've used because you're terrified of fasting. You're terrified of fasting. You don't understand fasting. You don't even know if you like fasting. You're not even sure how fasting works. And yet I'm just going to constantly point us in the Bible toward people like Jesus and Moses and Paul and all of these individuals, including Jehoshaphat who saw something terrifying happen and they fast. If you're walking into a season where you just feel overwhelmed, can I encourage you to experiment with fasting? Not because you understand it, but because the Bible commands it. Not because you get it and you like know how it's all gonna work, but because you just trust in the mystery of it, God's gonna show up. I've said it before, I'll say it again. When it comes to fasting, it's so true. Obedience precedes understanding. Meaning we all want to obey God in such a way where we understand him and then we obey 
but obedience proceeds, meaning it comes first. Obey first, understand later. Fast first, and then you'll understand why fasting matters. Stop eating food for 24 hours. Like make that decision to commit that time to the Lord and watch what he does with that. You'll never understand fasting unless you do it because obedience precedes understanding. This is what Jehoshaphat does. He has this tool in his toolbox and he doesn't just call himself. He calls everyone to it. It goes on this way in verse four. It says, the people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. So, so this is interesting. It says the people came together and then it's almost like the author is like, no, 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 they, they came from everywhere and they came together. There was this time of national crisis. And again, instead of forming the army and getting all trained up and being, making their battle plans, they decide to not eat for a period of time to seek the Lord in fasting and prayer. They resolve to seek the Lord. And then it tells us they do another significant thing. They bring themselves together. They gather. Like it's this terrifying moment, this anxiety, fear-inducing moment. And what they choose to do is gather together. Because here's what was true for the ancient people of God. And here's what's true for you that isolation will only add fire to the fuel, or fuel to the fire of anxiety. Uh, like I need you to know that. I'll say it again. Isolation only adds fuel to the fire of anxiety. If you're feeling anxious, if you're feeling stressed, if you're feeling worried, if you're overwhelmed by the circumstances of life right now, you isolating yourself and pushing away from the people who love you most is the worst thing you can do. Even if you're saying, well, I just need some space right now. I just need to be alone right now. Listen, it's okay to be alone. It's okay to need space. That's okay. But you choosing to cut off relationship because you're stressed is you choosing to make a situation that is bad much worse than it needs to be. Uh, like the people of God here, they gather together. The people of God, they come from everywhere and they gather together in the midst of their stress and anxiety and worry about what's about to happen. And I need you to know what was true for the ancient Israelites is true for you. But like you can't do this alone. If you're feeling anxious, I'm telling you, there are tools at your disposal. And one of the most important tools is that you just show up. You show up on Thursday nights. Like literally, even if you show up here tonight and you don't speak to anyone, there's just a power in knowing people are there. There's a power in the gathered church. There's a power in small groups. Like small group isn't supposed to be like every night I go, it's the most exciting night of my life. What small groups do is we get together and we gather and God works in a mysterious way when we show up together. And here's what I think. I think all of you get that now more than you did six months ago. Because I know I get that now more than I did six months ago. But like, remember early pandemic? I always like to distinguish like early pandemic, like all the think pieces that were out. And by the way, if you ever read a think piece, just ignore it because it's wrong, right? You read the think pieces and they're like, this is the end. This is the end of large gatherings. No one's going to a football game ever again. No one's going to a concert ever again. Church think pieces, which are the worst, like church think pieces were like, this is the end of church services. It's just online from here on out. Everyone's just going to watch online. No one's ever going to go anywhere. This is the end game. We are in it. It is in person, done, online only. And this is what everyone had to say. But then like, did you notice that it took like weeks for us to be sick of that? But like weeks for us to be like, if I never have to do another Zoom meeting again, I will be pleased with my life and that will be satisfactory, right? But like you get to this place, you're like, live stream's nice, but there's something about being together. And like, listen, there are people listening online right now. And I want to acknowledge them for the sake of us here. There are people listening online who would kill to be here but they live with someone who is compromised. They live with someone who is at risk. They live with someone that can't get here or maybe they themselves don't have that. And so I wanna recognize people who are there. I wanna recognize that, but here's what I know. We've talked to people who can't be here yet and every single one of them is aching to be here. Like they want so desperately to be here. We know those of you listening online, you want to be here so desperately because here's what we all understand. Here's what we know, that online engagement is a great short-term supplement, but, but, but listen, it's a terrible long-term substitute just doesn't work long-term. So like, okay, yeah, we're going to gather and we got to do it outside. And like, literally we're doing construction. So we're like, okay, stage on the kill, go, you know, like we're just doing this mass and distancing the whole bit. Why? Because like, listen, watching online and watching the live stream, even for those of you tonight, it's a great supplement. We had to go a number of weeks where that's all we did, right? Like that was YA, that was Thursday nights, that was church. Uh, and yet I just really believe if this season has taught me anything, it's the significance of being in person, of being together of seeing people face to face. Technology is a great, or a great supplement. It's a terrible substitute. And I need you to remember that. I need you to remember that a year from now when this is all past and this is all moved forward and we're into this new phase and you're tempted to just think it's just the same watching a sermon on YouTube as it is showing up to church. It's not. The people of God gather together 
And when the people of God gather together, no matter how uncomfortable or no matter how strange or no matter what's happening, there's something powerful that God does when we gather together. So it goes on this way in verse 10. It says, now there are men here from Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came to Egypt. So they turned away from them and did not destroy them. See how they were repaying us, coming to drive us out of the possession you gave us as an inheritance? Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army who's attacking us. I'm gonna just be real honest with you. I skipped an entire section. We're gonna go back. It's just, it is what it is. Verse five. <laughs> oh, Lord help us. Then Jehoshaphat stood. I was like, who's speaking here? Oh, it should be Jehoshaphat. I totally missed that. All right, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the temple of the Lord in front of the courtyard. So Jehoshaphat gets up in front of the people. They're all gathered together and they're gathered together. They're fasting, they're seeking the Lord. And now they need a word from their leader. They need their leader to step up and say something. And you might expect one of two speeches to come at this point. The first speech you might expect is like the, it's all good, don't worry speech, right? Like, I know this seems bad, but it's actually good. And you've all, if you work at a company or if you've like been at your school, you've all gotten those emails from like your school, right? Where they're like, hey, so bad news. We're not gonna be on campus, but good news. We have a cool online platform. And you're like, you're just, this, we're not buying it, right? Right, like, like you're not in, like, like we've all seen that speech where someone gets up and they're not actually speaking the truth. They're just not being honest. You might expect that, or you might expect the opposite, which is the panic speech where Jehoshaphat gets up and goes, guys, this could be the end. I don't know what to say. <laughs> Peace be with you, right? But that's not what the speech he gives. I want you to see the actual speech he gives. He gives an entirely different speech and I think it's powerful. He goes on, he says, Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who is in heaven? You ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations, power and might are in your hand. No one can withstand you. Our God, did you not drive out the inhabitants of the land before your people Israel and give it forever, the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They have lived in it and they have built a sanctuary for your name saying, if calamity comes upon us, whether by sword or judgment or plague or famine, we will stand in your presence that bears your name and we will cry out to you in our distress and you will hear us and save us. Like he's crying out to God. And, and by the way, um, sometimes I read the prayers of the Bible and I realize how unbelievably selfish and me-centered my prayers are, Right? He's praying and he's just like, God, you're the God of the universe. You're the God of power and might and majesty. Your, your presence is all I need. This is how he prays. But do you notice what he's doing in his prayer? He's remembering what God did before. I actually just need to speak this over someone who's stressed out, who's worried, who's anxious right now, who feels like, how am I possibly going to overcome this moment? Can I remind you that God has allowed you to overcome every moment of your life up until right now? That there is a God who has never failed you, Ned. He hasn't let you down. He's never had a moment where he's let you down. You've never slipped through the cracks. You've never lived a moment of your day where God has not been in utter control of your life, where he's not brought you to this point. You've had plans that have fallen apart. You had things that you thought would go. You had relationships that just got destroyed along the way. But here you are. God's taking care of you the whole way. And here's my question for some of you to ponder on and chew on tonight. Write this one down. What makes you think that this time God will fail? Like all of these times before, God's been faithful. He's been faithful. He's been faithful. And then in September of 2020, God was like, I'm over it, right? Like, like that's going to happen. It's not going to happen. He's never failed you yet. He won't fail you now. This is one of the things we need to be as Christians. We need to be remarkable historians who remember what God has done before. Listen, God brought us through something before he'll bring it through it again. God's brought your life through something before he'll bring it through it again. Like your family's been through stuff before and this might be the hardest thing your family's ever going through, but God is able and he is faithful and he will bring you through once more. Our church is going through something like we've never gone through before, but you know what? God's not scared. God's not asleep. God's not worried. God's not nervous. God's not anxious. God is present and he knows exactly what he's doing in our church, in your family, in your life, in our nation, in our world. And there's no reason for us to believe that he's gonna fail us now. This is the speech, and he goes on this way. He says, now, this is what I read before, verse 10. He says, now there are here men from Ammon, Moab, Mount Seir, whose territory you would not allow Israel to invade when they came to Egypt. So they turned away and did not destroy them. See how they're repaying us for coming to drive us out of the possession? In other words, he's facing the reality. God, you've been faithful before, but I need to be honest, God. These people are coming against me now. Our God, will you not judge them? For we have no power to face this vast army that's against us. What a confession, God, you've been faithful before, but I just got to remind you that I am useless against this thing I'm up against right now. But you're not. You could do this. 
Well, I'm powerless against COVID-19. I'm powerless against the economy collapsing. I'm powerless against the craziness going on in our world. God, I'm powerless about what I'm going on in my family and my health and my body right now. I am powerless. And then he says a sentence. And it's a sentence that if you would actually just start praying it, it could change your whole life. Uh, like this is a sentence I literally want you to write down somewhere. Like if you have a note card, put it on your, uh, on your dash of your car, put it as the screensaver on your phone, like do whatever it takes for you to pray this over and over and over again. If you're anxious, if you're afraid, this sentence could change your life. Verse 12, he prays this. He says, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. We do not know what to do. We're totally lost here, but our eyes are on you. I need someone here to commit to praying this every day this week. The first words out of your mouth, even if you're alone in your bedroom, in your apartment, is God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. To the person right now who's stressed out about work and you're not even sure how your career is gonna take off and it feels like everything's collapsing, to pray to God and say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. To the person here who's not sure how they're gonna pay rent next month, because they lost their job and things aren't going so well and there's not a relief check coming anytime soon. God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. To the person whose family is falling apart, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. To the person who's not even sure whether they should be in the relationship they're in, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. You look to Jesus, you talk about Jesus, you get your eyes on Jesus, you get your eyes off your circumstances and on your God. You glimpse at your circumstance, you gaze at your God and you say, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Someone needs to write that down. Someone needs to think on that. Someone needs to tattoo that on your arm if that's what you're into, okay? That is what we need in this place. We wanna be the type of church who says, God, when we don't know what to do, our eyes are on you. Why? Because what has your focus will shape your future. And if your focus is on all the nonsense of this world, all the terrible things on the news, all of the horrible political divisiveness or, or the things that are going on in this world, if your focus is on all the dirt and nastiness of this world, that will shape your future. But if you look to Jesus, the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the Father, the one who is resurrected from the dead, the one who's not scared of anything and not scared of nobody, that Jesus, when you keep your eyes on him, he will shape your future. And it will be a beautiful and a glorious future when you say, God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. It goes on this way in 13. It says, all the men of Judah with their wives and their children and their little ones. It's like, bring the wives and bring the kids and bring everyone in right now. They stand before the Lord. That says, and the spirit of the Lord came on Je Jehaziel, son of Zechariah, son of Benadiah, son of Jael, the son of Mattia, a Levite and descendant of Asaph. And he stood before the assembly and he said, listen, King Jehoshaphat and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. What a moment. Like this guy's not the king, but he gets up and he goes, I have a word to speak. And he speaks this word. He says, this is what the Lord says to you. Someone needs to hear these words tonight. These words were spoken to ancient Israel, but I believe our God continues to speak these words over his people. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army for the battle is not yours, it's the Lord. The battle is not yours, it's the Lord. The battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. It's not yours to win. God's not expecting by your strength you'll get through this. This is his fight. He's going to win it. He goes, the battle is not yours, but the Lord's. And then he goes on in verse 16 and he goes, tomorrow, March down against them. Now that confuses me a little bit. And here's why it confuses me. Because I would expect him to say, the battle is not yours, it's the Lord's. And everyone's like, amen. And he's like, therefore, go sit over there and watch God win, right? If you expect that, sometimes church people were like, just leave it up to God. Just like, let go, let God, let God do his thing. And we kind of think that means like you just sit in a rocking chair with sweet tea and watch God do his thing, right? But that's not the command here. The command isn't sit back and watch God do his thing. It's march at him, go at him. Like in other words, God's gonna win this battle, but you got work to do. God's gonna win this thing, but you got a task ahead of you. God's gonna win this thing, but you take that first step of faith. God's gonna win this thing, but you step out in faith, believing that as you march toward this army that is going to overwhelm you, that God's gonna take care of it. See, I wanna call someone here tonight as much as I'm saying God is gonna win this battle, I believe that just like this moment, God's calling you to do one thing, to take that hard step, to take that difficult step. I wanna challenge you tonight to do the one thing that scares you. And listen, I don't know what the one thing that scares you is. I just wanna challenge you to do it. Because here's what I know. I don't know what the one thing that scares you is, but you do. You know exactly what the one thing that scares you is. 
I think if I asked everyone, what's the one thing you know you're supposed to be doing in your life, but you haven't done yet because it scares you a little bit, I think almost every one of you have an answer. And if you don't have an answer, you need to get clarity on that answer right now. Do the one thing that scares you. Maybe for some of you, it's have that hard conversation. Some of you need to go have a hard conversation with your mom and you've been putting it off for years because it's terrifying. Some of you need to have a hard conversation with a boyfriend. You need to have a hard conversation with your boss. You need to have a hard conversation with your dad where you go, dad, you always wanted me to go to school and do this thing, but I'm not going to do this thing. That scares you because you don't want him to be disappointed in you and you don't want her to be mad at you and you don't want the relationship to get tense. Go have that hard conversation. God is going to take care of it, but God is asking you to do that hard thing to take that first step. Some of you need to quit the thing you shouldn't be doing. Listen, some of you are in school and you have no business in school. I'm not anti-school. I love school. I went to college. I went to grad school. I love school. But listen, some of you are in school because you're trying to make your mom happy. Some of you are in school because you just think that's the thing you're supposed to do. Some of you are in school because you have no other plans in life and you just think an education is what you're supposed to be doing right now. And listen, again, school might be the exact thing you need to do. And if I'm not talking to you, I'm not talking to you. But some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You need to quit school. You need to quit your job. Like some of you are working a job where you're miserable and God did not create you and redeem you and raise you up to go to a place you're miserable for 40 hours a week. Some of you need to quit that. Some of you need to walk away from a boyfriend, walk away from a girlfriend. Like I know that's hard to hear for someone here, but I just believe there's always people in this audience who are dating someone and you're dating someone not because they're great, but because you're terrified of being alone. I wanna call you to break up with them, to do the hard thing, not because it's easy, but because it's the thing you know you need to do. Some of you need to walk away from a living situation. You've been living there and it's toxic and it's not helping and it's not moving you forward and you need to make that decision even though it's gonna cause some awkward conversations down the road. Stop doing something, quit doing something. Final thing is start the thing you should be doing. Like some of you need to quit school, some of you need to start school. Some of you need to jump into a job you know you should be doing. Some of you need to actually start doing something called confession where you get to someone you love and trust and know and say, I have something to tell you and I've been wrestling with something alone, but I need to tell you this. Like, listen, some of you need to start professional counseling. Like some of you need to go get with a counselor and actually sit down and start to unpack some of the baggage that's been weighing you down your whole life. Some of you know, and you've known you need to do that for years. You've just never done that. Like if you just come talk to us, like me, Pastor Brian Williams, Sarah, we'll, we'll, we'll connect you with, we'll get your number, we'll get your name, we'll get you a recommendation, we'll get you someone. Tonight, we can get you someone but you need to start doing something. Some of you said you were gonna go into ministry and here you are and you haven't gone into ministry, you need to start. Some of you said you were gonna start a business or an organization and you haven't done it and you need to start. Listen, there's these overwhelming things out there and God is going to be our victory and God is going to be our strength, but the call isn't to sit back and do nothing with it. It's to march against that army, to do the one thing that we don't wanna do. It goes on this way, it says, they, they will be climbing past the pass of Z's and you will find them at the end of the gorge of the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Like what a beautiful phrase. You're gonna march down, but you're not gonna have to even fight this battle. So take up your positions and stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will give you, Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Am I talking to anyone tonight? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. And then he goes on to say, go face them tomorrow and the Lord will be with you. Jehoshaphat bowed down with his face to the ground and all the people of Jerusalem and Judah fell down and worshiped the Lord. And then some of the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korathites stood up and praised God, the Lord of Israel, with a very loud voice. And then early in the morning, they left for the desert of Tekoa. They go out and Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, Judah, the people of Jerusalem, have faith that the Lord your God and you will be upheld. Have faith in his prophets and you will be successful. After consulting the people, Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him for the splendor of his holiness as they went out to the head of the army. Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever, they said. So this is my favorite part of the story. They march up against the army. They're all out there. It's like they can see the army coming at them and they're all standing there and go, we know God's gonna win this thing for us, but we're supposed to march against them. And then the king goes, okay, I got an idea. Worship team, out front, right? They're like, Jacob, Robbie, lead the way, right? And he's like, should I have a sword? No, 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 no. Just start singing Waymaker, okay? Just, just march and be like, Waymaker, where echo, where? And they're just marching and they're singing and they're crying out to God. This is a beautiful moment. Don't miss how crazy this is. There is an army marching against them who wants to kill them. And what they decide to do is put the worship leaders out front and sing to the Lord their God. And here's what's so wild to me. They're not singing because God has won the battle for them. 
because God hasn't yet won the battle for them. They're not singing for what God has already done. They're singing and worshiping because of God, what God will do. Isn't that remarkable? Their praise isn't because of what God has accomplished. It's because they know he will accomplish it, even though he hasn't done it yet. I think this is remarkable. I think it's remarkable that they send the worship leaders out front to worship before the battle is won. And it reminds me that as a Christian, what we need to do is we need to practice a posture of proactive praise. We need to practice a posture where we are praising ahead of time, where we are praising in advance. We need to practice it. Like, like practice assumes you're not gonna be good at it, okay? So if you're hearing me tonight going like, I, I need to praise God ahead of time, yeah. You're like, I'm bad at that. Yeah, congrats, that's why I'm calling it practice. Like we practice things we aren't good at. You following Jesus is a matter of you practicing things over and over. I'm gonna worship before it happens. I'm gonna worship God before the hard conversation. I'm gonna worship God before the hard season. I'm gonna worship God before I overcome my joblessness or my singleness or, or my stress or my worry or my anxiety or my heaviness. I'm gonna worship him ahead of time because I'm gonna practice this posture of proactive praise. This praise ahead of time. This praise that says God hadn't done it yet, but he will. God hasn't rescued me from this pit yet, but he'll pull me out. I'm gonna be praising anyway in the future, so I might as well start now because we have a God who is not just worthy of praise for what he has done, but for what he will do. Because what we see in the scriptures is that every promise of God given to us is something we can be sure is going to happen. So God promises he will raise your body from the dead. He will give you a home in heaven forevermore. He will rescue you from this wickedness of this earth. He will raise all things, make all things new, wipe every tear from your eyes. He will give you a home. You will rule and reign with him forever. And that is worthy of praising him, even though none of those things have happened yet. It is worthy of a proactive praise. I wonder if sometimes you need to praise God for the fact that a hundred trillion years from now, we'll be with him in glory. That's what we praise God for. What he's done, not just what he's done in the past, but what he will do in the future. They send out the worship leaders out front and they're crying out to God, this practice of proactive praise. And then here's how the story ends today. It says in verse 22, as they began to sing and praise, as they began to sing and praise, which, which we're going to do right now, our, our band's going to make their way up right now, um, and we're going to sing and praise. But here's what happened when this group of people began to sing and praise. It says, as they began to sing and praise, the Lord set ambushes against the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, who were living in Judah, and they were defeated. This is remarkable. This isn't as the people of God marched and were like perfectly arranged as an army and they had the perfect strategy. It's as they began to praise, God releases victory for them. As they began to praise, God raised them up. As they began to praise, the enemies were defeated. As they began to praise. This is the remarkable thing about this story. It's not how strong they were. It's that in their worship, their battle was won. This is what's so beautiful about this story. You know, we sing a song here on Thursday nights quite often, and we sing this song, this is how I fight my battles, right? So we sing, this is how I fight my battles. And then you're singing this song, and maybe you're new to church, or maybe you've been in church for a long time, and you're just going, "What? I don't understand how this is how I fight my battles. And maybe you've gotten to the point where you're like, I guess worship and my battles are somehow connected. And I think that's absolutely true. And I want to try to explain why we sing this song tonight. Well, what does it mean that I have a battle with anxiety? I have a battle with being single and I feel lonely and it's overwhelming me. I have a financial battle and I don't know what to do with that. I have a problem with my life. I feel overwhelmed. I feel stressed. I feel anxious. What in the world does worship have to do with that battle? And here's the answer. Do you know that when you worship, the fundamental thing you are doing is you are proclaiming that God is great and you are not. God is awesome and you are not. God is worthy of his praise and we are not. But like to worship, it's to humble yourself. But like, listen, if you are ever in a place where you are singing worship songs and you feel awesome about yourself and how great you are, you might be singing songs, but you are not worshiping. Worship should bring us to a place where we go, God is awesome and God is enthroned on high. He is sovereign over all things. He is the good God of the universe and I am nothing that he would want anything to do with me. That's worship. So what happens when we worship? when we worship, when we pour out ourselves before a holy God who would dare to even look at us, we humble ourselves before the Lord. And here's the great promise of the scripture. You can take this one home. James chapter four and verse 10 tells us, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. 
When you humble yourself before the Lord, God lifts you up. When you humble yourself and when you get down on your knees, God raises you in a way that you couldn't possibly imagine. How does worship help us fight our battles? Worship humbles us. And when we humble us, God raises us up. God exalts us. God lifts us up. God takes us out of the pit. God takes us out of despair. God takes us out of anxiety. So to the person who's here tonight and you're worried, you're worried about what comes next. You're worried about your job. You're worried about your money. I'm calling you tonight not to figure out some strategy, but to worship and humble yourself before a holy God. To the person here who feels overwhelmed with relationships and overwhelmed with the stress of your life and your past, I'm not calling you to figure out some strategy. I'm calling you to humble yourself. To the person here who isn't sure what comes next, who isn't sure what our country is going to look like, who isn't sure what your family is going to look like, what our church is going to look like, we humble ourselves tonight. Because when we humble ourselves, the God of the universe raises us up. We fight our battles through worship because when we worship, we humble ourselves. And as we humble ourselves, we do what Jesus did. We're in Philippians chapter 2. It says, when he, Jesus, was found in the appearance of a man, he did what? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ humbled himself, and the Father lifted him up. Jesus Christ went low, and the Father lifted him high. And so tonight, the command, tonight, the call of your life is to humble yourself, to get down low, to exalt the God of the universe. If you're overwhelmed, tonight I call you to sing. Tonight I call you to pray in advance. If you don't know how this all shakes out, I call you to sing tonight because when we humble ourselves before the Lord, He exalts us. He raises us up. He fights our battles. So stand to your feet right now, you weary sinners, you difficult situations, you people who are wrestling with all of the difficulties of life. I invite you to fight your battles tonight, not through your own strength, but through a God who says, humble yourselves before me and I will raise you up. This is hell.